Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend message with you from Pastor Heather Zimple, our discipleship pastor at NCC. If you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to theaterchurch.com. Earlier this week, I asked my two-year-old daughter, Sawyer, uh, what happens on Easter? And she said, I get yummy things. I have no idea who taught her that. And so I I changed the the course of my question a little bit. I said, okay, Sawyer, what happened on Easter? And she said, treats. (laughs) So I'm doing a terrible job discipling my kid. Hopefully I'll do a better job uh, this weekend. Uh, We are entering a new season called Lent on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. We go into a season of Lent. Now, for some of you, you come from church traditions where you practice that, and so you're very familiar with that season. Others of you think I might just be talking about the stuff you scrape off the screen in your clothes dryer. But in short, Lent is a season of 40 days leading up to Easter to prepare our hearts for celebrating the resurrection. Uh, It's a season that the the 40 days kind of reflects on, remembers Jesus' 40-day wilderness journey uh, as he was praying and fasting and preparing his heart for ministry. And I found that uh, as I approach Easter, I can enter into the joy and the celebration and the life of resurrection uh, much better if I've spent some time on my own wilderness journey of prayer and reflection and repentance. And so here at NCC, uh, we've started a 40-day prayer challenge. Uh, If you haven't picked up a copy of Pastor Mark's Draw the Circle, would encourage you to do that. Uh, For our families, our kids team has put together an awesome resource to walk through this 40-day prayer challenge with our kids. And I just invite you to be a part of that. And along with that new season that we're engaging in, we're also starting a new sermon series this weekend. And uh, fittingly, it's on prayer, on the Lord's Prayer. We find it uh, in a couple of places in our Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6. We also find it in Luke 11. And so if you have your Bibles with you this weekend, I I would invite you to go ahead, take them out, open them up. You can go to Matthew 6, uh, take a pen out, because we want to mark things up and write things down and discover things during the series. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, I would encourage you to pull up your phone, um, pull up the Bible app, uh, or otherwise you can just follow along on the screens with us, because during this series, I want us to dig in and really learn together. Uh, Now, in Luke 11, the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. This was actually uh, potentially a kind of curious question coming from uh, this group of men because these were Jewish boys. They had learned to pray from a very young age. They'd been praying their whole lives. In fact, they prayed some of the same Old Testament texts that we pray today. I would actually argue that Peter and John probably could have prayed circles around some of us. Um, No pun intended from Mark Batterson language. But um, they were Jewish kids. They knew how to pray. And yet they come to their teacher and they say, teach us to pray. I think when we understand a little bit about the context they were in and their history and their culture, it opens up the door, it unlocks some keys to understanding not only why they asked this question, but what their relationship was like with Jesus and what the prayer Jesus taught them means for us today. Now, one of the problems I think we have when we come to the scripture is that when we read the Bible, we have this Western lens through which we filter the words we're reading. And if we want to understand 
the teachings of Jesus, then we're going to have to enter into the world of first century Judaism. And we're going to have to get into the mind and the worldview of a first century Jewish rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. I think what we've got to remember is that this book is not a fairy tale. It's not Marvel Comics where Jesus just shows up one day with a cape and superpowers to change the world. This didn't happen a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It happened in a real place, in a real time with real people, which meant that there was culture and language and traditions. And, and I don't say any of this to make, uh, to make light of Jesus' divinity, but so that we can make the most of his teaching. That Jesus came from a very specific and unique context. And when we enter his world, we can better apply his teachings in our world today. And so if you'll allow me for just a moment to nerd out a little bit and stick with me, because I think some context and some background will help us unlock keys to this prayer over the next few weeks. So about 200 years before Jesus was born, the Jewish people began praying this standard prayer called the Amida, or the 18 benedictions. It was 18 stanzas of different prayers. And the Jewish people were taught to pray this prayer. Jesus would have been taught to pray this prayer. Have you ever wondered who taught Jesus how to pray? It was probably his father, Joseph. But Jesus knew this prayer. It was very long. And, and the Jewish people kind of had this requirement to pray it at least once a day. And so what some of the religious teachers would do is take that very long prayer, those 18 benedictions, and shorten it into their own abbreviated version. And they would teach their followers, if all else fails, if you can't do the whole thing, just pray this every day. Pray this shortened abbreviation, abbreviated version of it. So when the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray, they're probably asking Jesus, Rabbi, what is your unique shortened abbreviated version of the benedictions? Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. Tell us, what is, what is your unique take on this prayer? And when we put the Lord's Prayer up against those 18 benedictions, it is strikingly similar. This was very clearly Jesus saying, look, we, we live in this unique religious context. This is the prayer we've been taught to pray. And, and this, is my, this is my highlights version. If all else fails, pray this. And so what we find in the Lord's Prayer is not something that would have been brand new or shocking or revolutionary to those disciples. It would have been words that they were very familiar with and, and the length of it wouldn't have been shocking to them. The contents would not have been shocking to them. But Jesus does exclude some things that's that are fascinating. In the original long prayer, for instance, there were references to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were uh, pleas for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the restoration of the temple. Very Jewish-centered ideas. And so even though Jesus gives the disciples right back a very Jewish prayer, he strips it of some of its cultural trappings so that it's a prayer that's accessible to all people. So that's the first thing he does. He opens up access. He says this is a prayer that can be open to all and prayed by all. 
Another thing I think Jesus does is he shifts priorities and focuses priorities. This is important for us in the 21st century because I think a lot of times in our Western Christianity, we approach prayer as an antidote for our messes and an order form for our wants. That's what prayer is about. Get me out of this and give me that. And yet the prayer that we see Jesus praying re shifts the priorities, reminding us that there's a bigger world out there and a bigger God who's in charge, and that there's a role he's invited us to play in it. Yes, we find a God who is concerned about every detail of our lives, including the bread that we eat on a daily basis, but there's also a God who is bringing kingdoms and is shifting the history of the world. It's a God who is inviting us to play a role and the story that he is writing on the largest stages of human history. So he gives access, he shifts priorities. And the other thing that I think is really important for us to understand about the context of this prayer is that it's being prayed by a man who is living under foreign occupation and against the backdrop of very oppressive forces. And yet we find in this prayer a hope that defies every current reality that they're facing. It's a prayer that looks to a coming kingdom and talks about freedom and provision and deliverance. It's about access. It's about shifting priorities and it's about hope. And so in Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus begins to teach his disciples his highlight reel prayer. And he begins with the words, our our. <laughs> Let's not skip that first word, our Father. See, I think a lot of times we take a very privatized approach to our faith. Uh, my faith is my private business, your faith is your private business. Or, or we make God into a very personalized God. We tend to kind of make him in our own image or we, we think we have exclusive rights to God or try to put words in God's mouth based on our personal preferences. Oh, my God would never. And yet Jesus points us to not a personal prayer but a communal prayer. Right from the very beginning he establishes two relationships. A vertical relationship with the Father and a horizontal relationship with one another. Our Father one thing that, that I think is cool about this is that Jesus begins our Father, meaning he gives access to everyone. He doesn't throw down a gauntlet of requirements that you have to fulfill in order to come before the Father. He, he doesn't say this is who you've got to be in order to have access to the Father. He says our all of us, no one can claim exclusive rights to his fatherhood. And so you might be here this weekend and, and maybe you're here in church for the very first time ever or you don't know what you think about this Bible and Christianity kind of stuff. The good news I have for you this weekend is that because of Jesus, you have full access to the Father. Our Father. And, and what we also realize in this is that this is not about me, myself, and mine. It's about us and our and I know some of you are probably a little bit skeptical and you think, man, she's making a big deal out of that word hour. He didn't mean to make that big a deal about it. Well, I, I would just give a little teaser that later in the prayer, Jesus also prays, give us this day our daily bread. 
So I think it's very intentional and very meaningful that we're called to realize that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we pray together. It's not about me prayers. It's about us prayers. The answer to your prayers affects the answers to my prayers. I I would encourage you, especially during this season, find some people to pray with. Uh, there's a group of us, for those of you that are near one of our uh, uh, Capitol Hill campuses, um, every morning, Tuesday to Friday, in the performance space of Ebenezer's, we are joining together at 7 in the morning to pray together. Wherever you are, find some coworkers, some friends, some neighbors, and say, during this season, as we go into the, the, this Lenten season, as we're preparing for Easter, let's join together and pray together to our Father. Father. Uh, It's interesting, uh, if we look at the historical context, referring to God as Father was not a new thing for the Jewish people. Uh, God actually referred to himself as Father several times in the Old Testament. The first time, actually, is very interesting. In the book of Exodus, during the Exodus story, he says, these are my kids, they're not slaves. And, And the Jewish people were very accustomed to referring to God as Father when they prayed. But it was by far Jesus' favorite title for God. He used that title 165 times in the Gospels. Now, what's interesting about where we are today in our culture and our context is that there is a wide spectrum of reactions to that word. Some of us come from families that had great fathers, and so it's very easy for us to to resonate with that language and relate to God in that way. That's an attractive idea to relate to God as Father. Some of us had different circumstances. Maybe we had difficult fathers or difficult relationships with our fathers or or maybe they were absent emotionally or physically. Some of you have a a hard time uh, relating uh, to God as father because um, you've been abused or manipulated by men or authority. And so because of these stories and unique perspectives that we bring to the text, we have all of these different responses to it. Some of us run to the idea of God as Father because we didn't have that. We long for that. Or some of us run to the idea of God as Father because we did have a good Father and it, 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 it's easy for us to relate to Him in that way. And for others of us, it's just really difficult to think about God as Father And if that's you here this weekend, the first thing I want to tell you is you're not alone. So don't let the enemy try to tell you that because you can't view God that way, that there's no place for you in his family. You are not alone. I guarantee you there are other people around you this weekend that feel the same way. And what I would ask you to do is just spend some time with Jesus. I would encourage you to spend some time in his words, his teachings, his actions, because he said, he, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what I see in Jesus is this heart to restore our understanding of what the fatherhood of God is really about. Spend time with Jesus to understand who he is as a father. I think it's interesting the pictures that Jesus gives us of what kind of father God is. 
We see one picture in this story that we know is the, the story of the prodigal son. This, this man has two sons, and one of the sons comes to him and says, give me half uh, of the inheritance, and he goes off and he squanders it in ridiculous living. He throws away the good gifts of the father to the pigs, literally, and, um, and he, he comes to a point where he realizes he's lost and he's alone, and he crawls back home, and as he grovels at the foot of the dad, he says, I, I just, I just want to be able to earn my food. And the dad has been at the window watching and waiting and hoping for the day that his son would return. And as his son is down at his feet, he lifts him up. and says, you are my son. And he honors him and he celebrates him. And the picture that we see of God as father in that story is that it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how far you have run. It doesn't matter how far away from God you feel. He is watching and waiting to celebrate you coming home, to welcome you home, to embrace you as his kid. And then there's an, another picture that Jesus gives us. It's actually over in Luke 11 uh, where he tells the same, he gives the same teaching on, on this prayer. And, and he talks about how fathers give good gifts to their kids or good fathers give good gifts to their kids and, and God is the best father. And so how much more will the gifts be for his kids? And, and Jesus illustrates it by telling the story about a man who has a home. And one night there's a knock on the door and it's his neighbor that says, I need some food. I need to borrow some food. And the owner's like, man, it is like midnight, my family's asleep, the door's locked, I can't help you right now. But the neighbor kept knocking and kept asking for food and kept on and on. And finally, the owner of this house got so irritated that he went and he gave some food to the guy. And Jesus said that, you know, the owner wasn't willing to help the neighbor because of friendship. But because of, and this, these are Jesus' words, because of the neighbor's shameless audacity, the owner was willing to help. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how God is. He, he responds to shameless audacity. Maybe we need to learn that we can approach the Father with shameless audacity and strong-willed tenacity. My two-year-old, we have a, a routine every night before she goes to bed, and I swear it gets longer and longer and longer. You know, we read three books, that's, that's the standard, and then she wants more, and more, and more, and another one, and then we kneel by the bed to pray, and she's kind of praying, I don't really know what she's doing, and, and at the end of the prayer, she hops on my back, and she says, on Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen, I have no idea, and, uh, and then when I finally get her in bed, she grabs my arm, locks it in and says, stay with me, mommy. Stay with me, mommy. I need you, mommy. I need you, mommy. Just stay with me for a little while. The other night, we had a babysitter, and, and uh, when I got home, I was like, well, how did you saw your day? She goes, oh, she was perfect. I was like, how many books did she make, she make you read? Just one. I'm like, oh. Whew. Uh, well, did she hop on your back and act like she was Santa Claus? She's like, no. I was like, did she make you stay in there forever? She said, no. I just put her in bed, and she said, night, night. And I left. It's like, all right, you can come over every night and put this kid to bed. <laughs> Sawyer does that with me and with Ryan because she has a different relationship with us. And because she has a different relationship with us, she approaches us differently. And she asks us for things differently. She approaches me with shameless audacity and very strong-willed tenacity. 
We're God's kids. He's a good father. He's a father who guides and heals and comforts and cares. He's strong enough to protect you and yet tender enough to heal you. He's wise enough to teach you and patient enough for us to get our act together. And he is close enough to see you and to hear you and to know you. And when we understand, when we consider the closeness of the Father, it gives us confidence in our relationship with him. Our Father in heaven. Now, a lot of times, again, in in our context, uh, when we think heaven, we think of a future destination, as in, I will go to heaven when I die. But when Jesus says this, he's talking not so much about a future destination as he's talking about a current reality. Uh, It might better be translated, our Father in the heavens. Uh, Our Father who is above all creation. Our Father who is above and beyond the world we live in. A God who has the perspective of the heavens. And, And it's not so much a statement about where he is as it is about who he is. That he's not just a bigger, better version of us. He's completely other. It's a theological word called transcendence. And so what Jesus is telling us is that we've got the closeness of the Father with the perspective of the heavens. When we started our Long Story Short series about last year, Pastor Mark opened it with this quote that God is bigger than big and closer than close. And that's what Jesus is saying. Our Father who is close, who's in proximity in the heavens, who has position and power and perspective. When we pray, do we understand the power and the position that our Father has? Do we pray like David prayed when he said, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours? Or as Paul prayed, now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. Or Jeremiah who says, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. Or the psalmist who says, your loving kindness is great above the heavens. Do we recognize that the one we pray to has power and position and authority? In Isaiah, he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. When we have the perspective of the one in the heavens, it makes our problems here look very different. We have perspective. When we declare the greatness of God, we're able to depend more on his goodness and grace. Jesus says, you pray to one who has the proximity of the Father and the perspective of the heavens. And then Jesus prays, hallowed be your name. Now, we often tend to think of this in terms of a statement of praise. Hallowed be your name. You're awesome. You're holy. You're majestic. You're good. You're merciful. But in the way that this text renders its It's more like saying, may your name be sanctified. That'd be a better translation. 
It's not so much a declaration of who God is. It's a request for what God does. May you sanctify your name. Um, It's a request for God to do something. Now, to sanctify means to make holy, to set apart. It's something that causes one to stand in awe and wonder. May you sanctify your name. May your name be sanctified. Now, stick with me for a minute because this is fascinating. There are two ways we find in Scripture that God sanctifies his name. Two ways that God sets apart his name. Two ways that God puts his name in a place where people stand in awe and wonder. The first is by his own actions, what he does. Uh, For instance, in Ezekiel 38, 23, we read, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know I am the Lord. God is sanctifying his name, setting apart his name, causing his name to be famous because of the work he is doing in the world, his actions in the world. But here's what's crazy. God's name is not just sanctified by his actions, but also our actions. In Numbers 20, we read a story about Moses who has been disobedient in following the instructions of the Lord. And in verse 12, we read, God says, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community in the land I give them. Moses is told, look, you Your actions did not sanctify me. Your actions did not set my name apart. Your actions in front of all the Israelites made your name famous and not mine. Jesus says it in a way that might be more accessible to us in Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Jesus says that when you let your light shine, when you do good works, it sanctifies the name of the Father. It makes the name of Jesus famous in your generation. Our actions can sanctify the name of God. When we follow Jesus and we do what Jesus did, the way that he did it, and we walk in obedience to the Father, we sanctify his name. We make his name famous in our generation. God's name is at stake in us. And what's amazing about this prayer is it's, it's not just about asking God for what we want. It's not just about asking God to clean up our messes. It's saying, God, would you come and make yourself famous right here, right now? And as I walk in your ways, I want to play a role in making your name famous in in my generation as well. There's so much pat in this first line of this prayer. We realize that we're created by someone bigger than us for a story much larger than our own creation. And when we come to God and we say, God, I want to partner with you and the work you're doing in the world, that our actions will proclaim his name to the world around us. Our Father 
in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Well, you might be here this weekend and um, you don't, you've never taken that first step in following Jesus. This is a great weekend to do it. Lord, teach us to pray and Jesus gives us his heart on how to pray to the Father. I invite you, I invite you, take a step, take a daring step to start following Jesus this weekend. Uh, find, find somebody, come talk to one of the, uh, the pastors, to the prayer team across all of our locations. I want to encourage you, follow Jesus more deeply. Look to Jesus to understand the Father. Get the perspective that he has in the heavens. And join the work that he's doing around the world. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray to the one who has the proximity of a father. And as we consider his closeness, we grow in our confidence in that relationship. In the heavens, he's one who has the perspective of the heights of the heavens. And as we declare his greatness, we can better depend on his goodness and grace. May your name be sanctified. God, we invite you to do what you do. We plead with you to do what you do. We request that you do what you do to make your name famous. And we want to play a role in the story that you're writing in history. And then finally, we pray together to our Father. And so this weekend across all of our locations, I want us to just pray the Lord's Prayer together. So if our media team could, could put the, the prayer up on the screens across all of our campuses, and if you would go ahead and stand with me, and we'll pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.